Well, welcome to those of you who are watching us over there in the uh, worship center, and we gather together. If you're a guest, a very special welcome to you. You're our honored guest, but we have the privilege of worshiping in two rooms at the same time during this hour, and so we join together by video for the preaching of the Word. So uh, we welcome all of you from the other room. And before we jump into the book of James, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there now. We're going to walk through James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 this morning. Um, if you don't have a copy of the Word of God over there in the other room, there's one in the pew rack right in front of you. In this room, if you need a copy and you want a hard copy of the Scriptures, just raise your hand. Our deacons are looking. Just raise your hand and we'll get you a copy of that. And then probably most all of you could uh, find the Word of God on your, um, on your mobile device there. So either turn to or turn on James chapter 4 this morning. And before we move into our continued study of the Word of God, let me share with you what I shared with our entire staff this past week and what I shared with our deacons at the end of last week, and that is an announcement regarding what we intended to do with our modern service in the fall, but what we want to do is move that and change the timetable a little bit. Uh, we continue in this room here, in this modern service, um, we have been blessed enormously uh, to see what God has done here, and we want to continue to see growth in this room, and we have consistently um, really, after the first year of being here, we have consistently seen this room filled at 80% or above. In fact, uh, for the first five months of 2017, we're averaging over 500 people, just over 500, 501. 501, we're averaging in this room, which is right at or slightly above 80% full. And so for that reason, we've been praying and talking about and processing for some time, do we need more space in this room? to see more worshipers come here. And so our original intention was to open up a service in the fall, in August. And the numbers bear that out, that we perhaps need to do that from a space perspective, but really from an infrastructure perspective, perhaps this isn't the right time to do that. And so when the senior staff uh, gathered as we do weekly, a few weeks ago, we began processing and thinking through this as well. And it became very, very clear that while space-wise, we might want to move forward this August, it might be better to wait till January. Just postpone it until the beginning of the year. Lord willing, Lord willing, we'll follow his leadership, we'll follow his direction. Because we want to see the 9 o'clock service when we open it here in January, if we were to do that. We want to see that seated well. We want to see worshipers here. And so here is my encouragement to you, modern worshipers in particular, as you sit here at 1030, will you pray about your life group or you moving down to 9 o'clock to create more space when we open up in January, if we were to do this? This gives you the fall to think through, to pray through, doing that so that we can have a better uh, infrastructure here in place, more committed people, more committed life groups, here at 9 o'clock. And we think that will be better for the long-term impact of that modern service and for the growth of the church. So I shared that with our, again, with our uh, deacons this past week, with our staff. This is something we've been uh, walking through for the last few weeks, and we wanted to share this with you before we got too far in the summer. And so will you continue to pray for us that we'll have wisdom, that we'll have discernment to know how to continue to lead and to allow this service here to grow. We want all our services to grow, but when you put a cap on this room with the number of chairs that are here, will you continue to ask the Lord to give us great wisdom and discernment how to do that well? 
And so I just wanted to share that with all of you. Will you pray with me right now, and then we're going to turn our attention and our focus to uh, the book of James this morning. Lord, uh, we pray that you will be able to clear the deck of our hearts and of our minds right now, that you will be able, Father, and you can. It's not a matter of your ability. It's a matter of if your spirit will come and work mightily, and we pray that he will in all of our hearts because, Father, we all have things inside of us that James wants to address over the course of the next few moments that we have together. So may the word of God and the spirit of God lead the way. Lead the way. May there be this incredible calm. May there be this incredible quietness come over our minds and our hearts so that your spirit can speak. Oh, Father, may we encounter you and may we respond in confession and in submission to your perfect will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. James chapter 4 this morning as we continue in our series in the book of James. We're going to be continuing over the course of the next few weeks. And here is where we find ourselves. Let me catch everybody up. It always helps to know kind of where are we coming from when we, what, when we just jump into a passage. And here's where we are. In James chapter 3, James has, is writing these churches that are spread throughout the empire. And they're these house churches. They're not big churches, probably like what we are experiencing here or in this country. There's probably these small communities. And inside these small communities that James is writing to, here's what's happening. There's problems. Just like in any church, because the church is filled of people, and people are sinners. We're all sinners, and there's problems. And so in chapter 3, here's what James says. He says, whoa, 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 listen, church. There are issues with the way that you're using your tongue, the way you're speaking to and about one another. And then he pulls the curtain back a little bit further at the end of James chapter 3 and into James chapter 4, and he says, here's the problem. It's just not your tongue. It's your heart. Because your heart is hardwired into passions, into pleasures, into your own agenda. And you are beginning to have fights. And you're beginning to, to quarrel with one another. And you're beginning to see relationships strained. And you're beginning to see relationships broken within the house churches and maybe between the churches themselves. So he lays all of this out in James chapter 3 and James chapter 4. And then he follows it up with this. Last week... It is the Father's desire for his people to be in alignment with his heart and be in alignment with one another. He longs for that. And when he looks down and he sees his church or he sees your marriage or he sees our lives that are pursuing our own hearts and when they're unrestrained, these conflicts happen. God longs, he says, for his, your heart to be aligned with his. And here is what he says. He says, in order to do that, you need grace. James chapter 4, verse 6. God gives more grace. So his heart isn't sitting up there with a sense of condemning and judging without a sense of grace for you to repent so that he ultimately will not judge. He longs to give you grace. 
if you're in conflict. He longs to give you grace if there's fighting. He longs to give your marriage grace. He longs to give this church grace. But as we saw last week, there's this posture or position in order to receive grace, and it's one of humility. So last week, we began looking at humility. What does it mean to be in a posture where our hearts are humble in order to receive the grace that will come in and the grace that reconciles and heals? We saw last week where that humble heart is not rigid but pliable and soft. It's not... It is not proud, but it is submissive and and willing to undergo weakness so that the grace of God can come in and be strong in our weakness, but is not afraid of weakness, is not too proud to say, I am weak. Humility and, and faith are not timid, but they're bold because God's power outside of us can cause us to respond in humility to God, and then grace can come in. So if we want to be healed, if you want your marriage to be healed, if you want this church to be healed, if you want, you want your relationship with your children or your grandchildren to be healed, God says, I've got grace in store for you, but that grace has to come through humility because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. God is going to resist or put down those who are prideful. He's going to raise up those who need grace in their weakness. He's going to give them hope, and he's going to use them as a channel through which his grace can come through. So we saw the posture of humility this week, the pathway of humility. Look at verses 6 through 10 this morning, and I want you to listen and, and follow along this pathway, all right? We're just simply going to walk through the text this morning and see how God takes us through the pathway of humility. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thought number one right out of our text this morning is simply this, is that humility, this posture that we're in, helps us resist the devil, the evil one. Humility resists the devil. How so? When our hearts are soft, when our hearts are not timid, when our hearts are not proud, we suddenly become aware of our weakness and we become aware of somebody else, and that is the evil one. That's the devil. Now, the devil is, a, is an angel. He's an angel that was uh, cast out of heaven at the very beginning of time, and ever since, the evil one, he can't be everywhere at all times. He doesn't have that ability, but he does have this ability to accuse and to condemn, and he has a heart to blacken the glory of God, and he knows that he cannot blacken the glory of God directly, but he can do it indirectly by the way he deceives and divides and destroys God's people. He knows he can't touch the power of Almighty God, 
So what does he do? He goes after us. He goes after God's people. We see um, the work of the evil one, the work of the devil from the very beginning. He was present in the garden with the very first couple, Adam and Eve. And this is his calling card. He uses the passions of people and deception or falsehood or untruths. He uses this powerful concoction of our passions and our heart and our desires and our longings and deception. He puts this together and he deceives us. And when he deceives us, we begin to act out, as James has described, on our sins, on this deception. And it divides us between God, our heart, uh, from, from God's heart. And then it divides us as people. It divides us as church members. It divides you and your, your wife. It divides you and your children. When deception starts to move around and ultimately it destroys your marriage. It destroys your home. It destroys churches. Jesus said this about the evil one. You want to know what his calling card is? Jesus said when he's talking to the religious leaders that the devil is the, is the father of lies. He says he was, he was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You think Jesus had a point here? Here's what he's saying, that the evil one is ready to lie to you about who you are, lie to you about who God is, and lie to you about what God has said. And he's banking on this fact, just as he was with Eve. Eve's heart was to be like God. Just like he was with, with Jesus in the desert when the devil came to him and twisted scripture around and, and, and caused enough uh, untruth with the scriptures to come to Jesus. And he was appealing to Jesus' passions as he was fasting there in the wilderness for 40 days. And Jesus' desire in his mind and his heart and the evil one comes to him hoping that this would work. This has been his mode of operation for the people of God and for your heart for, a, for an awfully long, long time. And so when James comes to the people and he says, your passion's in your heart, you're pursuing your own things. You're pursuing your own ways, your own design. You're carving people up with your mouth, with your tongue, James chapter 3. There's fighting, there's quarreling, James chapter 4. Is it any coincidence that along with all of our passions and our sins is this little phrase, resist the devil and he will flee for you? Because James knows, the Holy Spirit knows, that when there's conflict, when there's fighting at home, fighting in the church, when there's all of these things, the devil is wreaking havoc because he longs to take our desires with a little untruth and put it together and then kind of wash his hands and kind of step back and just watch it go. And so James says, listeners, those of you who, who are, are the people of God, the church of God, before we go any further, resist him. That the phrase resist the devil, he will flee from you. The phrase resist the devil in, in other parts of the New Testament is stand your ground. Don't, don't give him, don't, don't give him that untruth. Don't, don't yield to him what he says about you, that you, that you, you, you cannot come to God, that you cannot know God, that you're, that you're a, a failure because of your sin. Look to the cross, point the evil one to the cross and say, there's the truth, evil one. 
I am a sinner, absolutely, but there is a great Savior. That is the truth, evil one. Don't give him any ground. As Under Armour says, protect this house, right? Protect your heart from the one who will come and who will wreak havoc by just spinning a little bit of deception in your own passions. James says, stop it. Resist him. Resist the evil one. You have to be aware. You have to be vigilant. You know, when 9-11 happened and those planes went into the towers in New York City, we began to become more aware as a government, became more aware and more vigilant as a people about what to do. Because these individuals use planes to fly into buildings, our government then began to check us as we go through airports, right? Over the last uh, few weeks, uh, there's been uh, these newspaper articles about how that when you go into some airports, the lines are so long and that people are frustrated and people are impatient. And I get that because the lines aren't even long in some of the, some of the times I fly and I get frustrated and I get impatient. Right? I mean, you, you walk in, do, can you take off your belt buckle? Okay, absolutely. Can you take off your shoes? Oh, by the way, you're watched. Do you have any coins in your pocket? What about your phone? Do you have a laptop in that bag? Why don't you take that out as well, all right? All the way through and you're like, why do I have to do this? And every time I go through the, go through the, uh, the, the security checkout, I'm impatient, but I lose perspective because my government is seeing evil and knows that we have to be aware and we have to be alert and there has to be perspective and patience and humility in order to resist the enemy. And that's what James says. Humble hearts recognize the work of the evil one. Proud hearts don't even see it and are tripped up and fall. And they fall for his lies. And one of the lies is our second thought this morning, and it is this, that humility draws us close to God, but the evil one would have us think that because you don't have it all together, you can't come near to God. Some of you um, aren't fully engaged in the life of the body of Christ here. You're not fully engaged in walking with Jesus because the evil one has fed you this line that says you're just not quite good enough. You're just not quite like um, the other people at Taylor's or your, your other neighbors who go to another church and they're pretty moral people and you're, you just don't quite measure up. And therefore you, you, you kind of resist and you kind of run or you kind of hide a little bit from God. And, and listen, listen to the context here of James. You have to understand this. When, when, when James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's because of humility and God's grace that we can do that because naturally we don't want to do that. Remember the context, James 3 and 4. There's sin. There's conflict. There's broken relationships. There's all of the... This is the context. You read it. And James comes in and he says, the devil knows these things and he's going to wreak havoc. So resist him, but then run to your father. Draw near to him. Because he has enough grace through the cross to cover your sin. And here's what we naturally do. We run when we're in trouble. We run when we feel we don't measure up. 
When you were growing up and you got in trouble, remember your mom would say those very, very famous words that have been said all across America throughout the ages. Wait till what? Wait till your daddy gets home. You ever hear that? And what do we do? We run to the bedroom. We run to our friend's house. Wait till your daddy gets home. And we pray that when dad gets home, he's in a good mood. <laughs> we pray that he has a meeting that night at church or at the office. And we hide from daddy because we have failed him. We hide from him because we think we haven't measured up, and maybe we have. But here is the incredible news of the gospel is that your Father has enough grace and mercy for you to run to Him. And here's this incredible truth for those of you who are running from Him. And some of you are in one of these two rooms. Here's the incredible truth. That this great God is indeed all-powerful, and yes, He does not like sin. He, sin angers Him. But through Christ, you can draw near to him, and as you come to him with humility, as you come to him, he runs to you, and he meets you in your repentance, and in your humility, and in your brokenness, and in your weakness. Why do we feel when we're weak? Think about this. Why do we feel that when we are weak, and broken and lost and can't figure it out. That the way out of that is to run from the great, gracious God of the universe. And he says, draw near to me and I'll, I'll draw near to you. Now, here's, let's keep walking down the pathway. Third, when we come to him, there needs to be confession. Humility, third thing this morning, humility brings confession that leads to holiness. You, some of you are saying, God is holy and I am not. You're right. God is holy, but through Christ you can draw near to him, and then through Christ our sin is confessed and repented of. All right? Read this phrase again. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here it is. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. James uses some sharp language here. He comes directly at you. He calls us sinners. He says you're double minded. Your, your mind is over here on this track following your own heart. But then you kind of turn over here and your mind is over here because I need to be spiritual. I got to follow Jesus over here. So I'm following my own heart over here. I'm following my own uh, Jesus over here. And you're double minded. And James says, he says, stop. And as you come to God, personally, on your own. As you draw near to God in your small group or in your Bible studies, as you draw near to God with your wife or with your husband in that bedroom, as you draw near to God, you begin to see how incredibly holy and gracious God is. Here's, here's the picture. He is holy, perfect, but he sent Jesus to suffer and die for a sinner like me. And I can come to him and meet him and I confess my sin. He, James here uses a, 
language that the Jewish readers would be familiar with when they come to the temple to worship. In, in Exodus chapter 17, Moses and Aaron, as they were coming to the temple, God said, all right, as you are going to offer that food, that sacrifice to me and worship for the, for the cleansing of your sin, wash your hands, and, and then I want you to wash your feet as you walk in. And the temple was eventually destroyed, and the Jewish rabbis took this very seriously, this idea of washing and cleansing. And so they moved it from the temple table to the dinner table. They moved it to homes, and now Jewish people, the ones who are Orthodox to this very day, go through these rituals of washing their hands before they were to eat. And James is looking at his readers, and he's saying, look, this is up to you as you draw near to God to, to wash outwardly, but then to be cleansed inwardly in your hearts as well. It works from outside in and from inside out. It's both. And here's the problem. Washing has become so ritualistic. It has become so easy to do on the outside. It's called religion. <laughs> religion is so easy to do. It's kind of like um, if you were to go downstairs, you would have sitting on the counters those hand sanitizer jugs, those big jugs. Some of you have hand sanitizers in your pocket. You have them in your purses. You have them in your car. You have them in your home. Hand washing for us has become so easy. It has become so common. It has become something that we don't even think about doing anymore. And here I think is what the Holy Spirit might be reminding us through the strength of James' language here. He's saying confession outwardly should move inwardly. And confession of our sin moves us to holiness the closer we are to God. And it's something that we take for granted, this sense of coming before God and confessing. When we come before God, what are we quick to do? To pray for ourselves or to pray for other people and the needs of our lives and all those things are good. But in order for us to with humility receive the grace of God, there has to be confession regularly, which leads to the fourth thing. What does this confession look like? Humility produces a seriousness toward sin. Now listen to this language, verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It doesn't sound like a very cheery verse, does it? <laughs> does the Bible condemn laughter? Absolutely not. Proverbs has this great verse in it. Proverbs where it says, um, the joy of a person's heart, laughter in a person's soul is like good medicine. It is good for your heart. It is good for your soul to laugh. I remember when I was in Washington, D.C., and I was uh, writing for the senator that I worked for, and the very first statement, the very first draft of a, of a speech that I ever made was made for a basketball coach from NC State University named Jim Valvano. And Jim Valvano had just recently passed away. He had cancer. And one of the things that we noticed as we were drafting that speech was how powerful he spoke about his cancer and his life and what you should be doing throughout your life. And so we included some of that language from his speech in that statement. I'll never forget it. It was the first one I ever did. And I was just so, so happy when the senator read that statement. And you're like, wow, that, that's great, great stuff. But here's the thing. I, I remember when I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, what Jim Valvano said about laughter. He said, every single day, a person should do three things. I think this is pretty good wisdom here. It's not biblical wisdom, but it's good wisdom. 
To me, there are three things everyone should do every day, he said. Number one is laugh. Laugh every day. Number two is think. Spend more time in thought. Number three, you should have your emotions move to tears. If you laugh, if you think, and if you cry, that's a whale of a day. It's true, isn't it? And we should laugh. The Bible does not condemn laughter. It doesn't condemn joy. We should be joyful. Jesus talked about having joy that's deep-seated in the midst of difficult times. But this is what James is saying in this pathway of humility. As we come near to God and we see our hearts and we're so ritualistic about what happens on the outside, what our external lives, James says, I want you to understand how seriousness your sin is. I want you to know that it's like a death. Laugh and, and don't laugh, but mourn and weep and cry. It's as if someone has died. And he says, church, the sins that you're committing against one another, the sins that you're committing against your spouse, the sins that you're committing against your children, it's as if a death is occurring and there's a separation from God and from others. And he's saying, will you please get off the path that laughs or is apathetic or doesn't care about your sin, but take it seriously because the evil one will destroy and divide. Your heart will take you away and it will destroy you. And here's the warning from the Holy Spirit. That unless we have a heart that is humble and aware of God and aware of the evil one and aware of our self-deceit, we will continue to go down a path where sin isn't taken as seriously as God takes sin. What an incredible warning from James. Now, here's the final word this morning. Number five. The gospel has an answer, and it is this. That the way up, the way up to be restored, to be healed, the way out, the way to freedom, the way to liberation, the way to reconciliation, the way up is to go low, to be down. He says in verse 10, he wraps it up. He says this, humble yourselves. So, so in light of all this, humble yourselves and he will raise you up. This is just like the gospel. Jesus humbled himself and he was raised up and exalted through the power of the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Taylor's First Baptist Church, some of you this morning right here need to go low. You need to go down. Your pastor daily needs to go down low. Not because we're tricking the system and God will say, oh, okay, there's a little game he's playing. But because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Because when we humble ourselves, he will raise us up. He will redeem. He will reconcile. He's just longing for someone to have a posture of their hearts where it's humble and ready to receive God's grace 
and then obey and respond. How will you respond this morning? Will you pray with me right now about, about that? Lord, in both rooms, the gospel is very clear in that there is forgiveness of sins through the cross of Christ. For some, today, there needs to be a first step towards Christ as they have heard this gospel, and they are not a part of the family of God. They, they are distant from God in their hearts, and they know it. And God, you are calling some, you are speaking to some to be raised to new life through receiving what you offer through your son, Jesus. Will you cause some, Father, to hear this good news and to respond? And Lord, for others of us who need to hear the, the sweet sounds of the gospel, that in our weakness, in our humiliation, in our hurt, in our hopelessness, there is grace if we'll repent and turn. So Lord, drive us low. Drive us down. Drive us before you in our hearts. May there be tears. May there be mourning and weeping over our sin and what we have done to you and your son's name. Would you lift us up? Would you raise your people up? Would you raise marriages up? Would you raise children up? Would you raise our church up as we go down? Oh, Father, may your word be true. We trust it. And we respond to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.